Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. Today, we get to discuss one of the few congressional races happening this year, this being an off-election year. And it's Ohio's 11th congressional district, which has a special election coming up fast on August 3rd. And this race is important to everybody for two reasons. So first, it's going to help determine the nature and clarity of the political leadership within this country. And you know, as we've mentioned before, you know, uh, deep in trying to finish this manuscript on this next book I'm working on, it's about how the Confederates never stopped fighting the Civil War and what we have to do to actually win that. And that this time reminds me of that post-Civil War period in a number of ways, that there's three different types of leaders and leadership, right? You have the actual Confederates continuing to champion white supremacy, which is very much what we have with the insurrectionist apologists and the Republicans. Then you've got the wishy-washy, ambivalent folks in the middle. And then there are more the abolitionist, unapologetic, pro-equality people. And that as I've been doing this research for the book, it's been fascinating to see the wishy-washiness. They could not pass the 13th Amendment to end slavery on the first vote. They had to edit it and make different changes to be able to get it passed through the House. Lincoln summoned Benjamin Butler, a Massachusetts politician, to the White House ask him to run the numbers to quote as to whether the negroes can be exported so this was his solution to racial justice to ship us all back to africa and so a lot of that kind of wishy-washy approach is really the equivalent of how many democrats look at issues like black lives matter and reparations etc and so that's the moment that we're in and so the types of leaders that we're going to send to congress um, are going to be very important in that regard and the second reason this race is important, because this is my hometown seat and includes Cleveland Heights, where I grew up. Susan and I have had lunch with our guests at the Legacy Village on Cedar Road in Lynnhurst, Ohio. And so we're really excited for the conversation, both on a personal level um, as well. And so for this conversation, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Charlene, how are you? And do you want to introduce our guest? Hey, Steve. Doing great. And I'm looking forward to talking to our guest today. Our guest today is someone who isn't afraid of making a splash and has advocated for bold, progressive change throughout her entire political career. I'm talking about former Ohio State Senator Nina Turner. I've been looking forward to talking to her, Steve, as I'm sure you have been too. Like last time we talked to her, she brought down the house, if you remember, at our Democracy in Color launch way back in 2016, if you can believe it. Yeah, and that was at the... Um, yep. I know it was epic. It was our Democracy in Color launch at the uh, DNC, the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. We had 300 women of color from across the country in one room. Uh, we, we gave them a luncheon. We had a whole bunch of amazing women of color leaders there, including Nina, talking about what it's like to be as women of color in politics today and what the future holds and both their challenges and also their triumphs. We'll link to the video of that event in the notes. And if you remember, Nina just closed that whole thing out. It, would think it was my first time meeting her and getting to see her in action. And she just made us all feel like we were in church the, in the very best way possible. She was just at the end, like dropping the mic. I just remember women on their feet, clapping, roaring. And I'll never forget that. And, you know, make sure that listeners know a little bit more about her. So let me just share a little bit of background on her. Nina made history in 2005 as the first African-American woman to represent Ward 1 on the Cleveland City Council, and again in 2008 
as the first woman to serve as a state senator in Ohio's 25th district. She also served during that time as state Senate minority whip. Nina served as Barack Obama's delegate twice to the Democratic National Conventions in 2008 and 2012. And then in 2014, she was a Democratic nominee for Ohio Secretary of State. She also served as the engagement chair for the Ohio Democratic Party. Then in 2016, did you see this pattern? This is like a woman who just keeps working. Nina Turner became a national surrogate and leading spokesperson for Bernie Sanders for uh, Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign and national co-chair for Bernie's 2020 campaign. And during that time in 2020, she also served as the president of the progressive national grassroots political organization, Our Revolution. Nina comes from a working class family in Cleveland's Lee Harvard community and is the oldest of seven children. And she worked her way through Cuyahoga's Community College and Cleveland State University, where she earned her bachelor's and master's degrees. On top of all that, she's a former assistant professor of history at Cuyahoga's Community College and a member of Sigma Gamma Rho sorority. And she's the host of the Hello Somebody podcast on iHeartRadio. Welcome, Nina. Thank you so much, Charlene. And Steve, it's so great to be back with you. And Charlene, you're definitely taking me down memory lane for sure. Right. <laughs> I was a moment. everything you're describing. Yes, it was a great moment uh, for us. And, and what uh, Democracy in Color has done to uh, really go deep in the race consciousness and really telling stories that are not often told. I really salute you and Steve for the great work that you both are doing. And I am looking forward, as I was when he wrote uh, Brown is the new white. I'm looking forward to reading how we will win the Civil War. Well, we're, we're looking forward to finishing it. So, there's that <laughs> as well. So, um, so, yeah, but thank you for joining us. Um, so, like a lot of people nationally, I think, know you obviously from uh, your work on Bernie's presidential campaigns, right? But you've been involved in politics long before Bernie ever even thought about running for office. And so, can you share with our audience what first motivated you to get in politics, involved in politics in the first place? Yeah, really, I, I like to say politics found me instead mm. of the other way around. But I know there's a universal saying that what you are seeking is seeking you. Mm. So maybe subconsciously, I was seeking that. But long story less long, in my college days, you know, I'm, I'm a first generation college graduate. I kind of found myself through student activism and being involved in student activities from writing for the Mosaic newspaper at Cuyahoga Community College to, you know, before I graduated from that institution, being the editor in my last year, that two-year college, and then matriculating to Cleveland State University and really getting involved in the politics. Uh, had joined the organization that I was one of the founders of called Students for Positive Action. Imagine that. And we really believed that if we could get people to vote, that their destiny, that they would have a part in controlling their destiny. And Steve, I'm sure you're familiar with the Huff area in Cleveland, mm -hmm. you know, the Huff riots in the 60s yep. and, you know, how there was one councilwoman in particular. She is uh, now in an, another plane of existence. But, you know, we talk a lot about Fannie Lou Hamer, who was a giant in the civil rights movement in her own right from the great state of Mississippi. But in Cleveland, Ohio, we have our own Fannie, too. And that's Fannie M. Lewis, who yeah. was the longest serving councilwoman on Cleveland City Council. And even to this date, even though she's not here with us physically, uh, she still holds that record. And it was really working with her in a grassroots way with the students for positive action that I will say my 
activism in a in a like a more formal way was born. It was the genesis of that. And as I look back on that measurement through the lens that we look at activism now, I'm sitting back saying to myself, wow, you were an activist. So that's really pretty much how it all started. And so, well, for our for our listeners, so the 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 Huff riots that um, you know was mentioning. So after Dr. King was assassinated, there was you know protests across the country, and so in Cleveland, a lot of that took place in the Huff neighborhood. Um, my mother talk, tells me about they were like tanks rolling through the streets of Cleveland, trying to uh, yes. the government responded. So that's the activism part, but what about the leap into politics? Yeah, well, I, I had the opportunity, and, and you saying what your mother said just real quickly, my dad was young, a young man. He remembers the curfews. Mm-hmm. He shared those stories with me and trying to get home and jumping fences and ducking through people's backyards wow. just to, to make it home. Yeah, Julie, that was a really dangerous time for uh, Black people, and you know it's just really hard, especially for Black males. So just having Steve talk about his mom and reminded me of that. But in politics, you know, formally in, in the politics of being elected, you know, I had the opportunity to work for one, uh, well, actually Cleveland's second African American mayor, and that's Mayor Michael R. White. And he was the longest serving mayor, but now Mayor Frank G. Jackson, who is no longer running again, is absolutely the longest serving mayor. But I got a chance to work for him. I got a chance even before working for the city of Cleveland and joining the mayor's cabinet. I worked for the first African-American woman elected to serve in the Ohio Senate uh, some years later after she, she did that in the 80s. But I got a chance to work for her in the late 90s. And in many ways, my foray into the formal side of politics politics was born right there at the state house and never did I dream that I would come full circle and become a state senator myself but along the way so I worked for Senator Ryan McLean from the Dayton area and then uh, Mayor White hired me I came back home and worked for him and his cabinet arose from being a legislative liaison to being in the mayor's cabinet. And when he decided not to run again, I went to the Cleveland Municipal School District, served as a public lobbyist, if you will. I know sometimes lobbying can have a bad connotation depending on who you're talking to. But I was director of government affairs lobbying on behalf of Cleveland's children, both on the, mainly on the state level, but also a little on the federal level. And then I ran for office for the very first time in 2001 and was not successful in that particular race. And we all remember 9-11 happened and all of those things that uh, really shook our nation and also the world and, and helped us to kind of look through a different lens about uh, our existence and war and, and what those kinds of things mean when you upset the stasis of, of, a, of, a, of a nation and many nations go through that on a regular basis. And then I ran again in 2005 and was successful becoming the first black woman to uh, to lead the Ward One community. From there, two years into my term, I was tapped to uh, compete for an open Senate seat. I was appointed to that seat at first, and then I ran for it for the first time in 2010. So I entered the Senate in the latter part of 2008 and went and, and served and was elected in 2010 and then 2014. And this is when Steve and Susan uh, they supported my candidacy. It was like walking through hell with gasoline clothing on, trying mm. to run for secretary of state <laughs> when Republicans. It was a it was a hard Hot year, wasn't as, it? Oh, for man, for yeah. Democrats in 2014. Yeah. So, yeah, I could keep going. But, you know, and 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 uh, Charlene, you you laid out my my, you know, went from that to working for the Democratic Party to 
uh, joining Senator Sanders in the latter part of 2015 to leading a national organization that he created right after that election cycle in 2017. I joined that organization and then having the senator come to me in 2019 to say, I'm going to try this again and I want you by my side. And I resigned my position at Our Revolution to join the senator on the campaign trail and, yes, was one of the national co-chairs serving with with Congressman Rokana, Mayor Eulene Cruz of San Juan, Puerto Rico, and the minister of ice cream himself, one of the founders of Ben and Jerry, Ben (laughs) Cohen. Yeah, and they made me first among all those equals. So I hope uh, that I tried to make it less long, but that's it. In a quick glance, uh, you you have been um, working so hard, and you've been through just a little bit. <laughs> you've been through a lot, and yes. I've been excited to. If I didn't mention before, just it's been exciting to follow your trajectory. And thank um, you. You've you, like like I mentioned in your bio. You know, you were there. You know, during uh, Obama era, and yes. also helping majorly on the campaign trail for Sanders, and also having survived like many of us through the Trump era. I wanted to just get straight down to this. How would you describe the country's political climate right now, given uh, the context of what we've just come through and also your experience prior? I would say it's tense. It's heavy. Mm -hmm. I can say that to keep it PG for our (laughs) listeners. Also ripe with opportunity. I do see promise in the problem. And I think the election of Trump, as painful as that was for our nation, Mm -hmm. hopefully there's some lessons to be learned there that we have to come face to face, that we have much unfinished business in the United States of America that is not necessarily linked to Trump. Trump is a manifestation of a, a deeper disease that we face in the nation that oftentimes we wrap up in a bow and we're not willing, ready, or able to deal with it. So Trump peeled back the layers. Like there is no denying that we have unfinished business racially and socially and economically and politically and environmentally. He was just a manifestation of that unfinished business. And I'm hoping that we will take uh, lessons from that particular, those four years and overlay them on generations of work that has been left undone. And that's what I admire so much about the show that you and Steve have because you peel back those layers on a regular basis, pre-Trump and also post-Trump. And I salute you both for doing just that. But I do see promise in the problem to more directly answer your question. That's good to hear. Well, to follow up on that, right? So in terms of the the journey that you described, right? So you know, Cleveland City Council, State House, um, Secretary of State. And then there was discussion at one point. That's the one I first met you. I thought I was like, oh, this woman's going to be mayor of Cleveland, et cetera, right? And so <laughs> yes. why this race and why this race now? To, to quote the great uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., it is the fierce urgency of, of now. And I do believe, you know, Steve, as you described the three types of uh, leaderships or maybe camps that people are in from the Confederate, which I know very few people would consider themselves in that camp, I guess. I don't know some people may be cheering to be in that camp to the wishy-washy people, I think you called them, to the abolitionists or what I would call the revolutionaries. I really do think that this particular opportunity of all the districts where an opening could be had, you know, out of 435 people, it happened in our hometown, in our home district, and me coming off of a very strong presidential campaign where my candidate certainly did not win the race. But I think that the principles that we are fighting for 
did win the day and we see it. Um, we see it even in what President Biden is doing right now. I think he's moving further left than he ordinarily would without the push of the progressive movement or the conscious minded movement. People can uh, pick their descriptors of what's happening in this country. And I'm thinking like from a spiritual lens, like this is the time, this opportunity is really ripe for me to bring down or to bear all of the collective experiences I've had from the elected office to the classroom to activism, all of those things in service to this community. Cleveland is the poorest city of its size right now in the United States of America. 50% of our children live in poverty. It, this district is Greater Cleveland and also Greater Akron. Uh, at least for the last 10 years, Akron has been in this district and there's about 23% poverty there too. Not to paint all doom and gloom, there is extreme wealth in the district too and opportunity institutions that can provide great opportunity for the district. But the, the, on, the, on, the, on the poorer side of the ledger, the problems are really great. And so for me, I just kind of felt the calling that this was the time for my type of leadership and then also the mission that I've been on universally in this country I think the things that I've learned and the relationships that I've built uh, really will uh, help to, to lift this district and this region and to really be able to do some really great things. And also in the tradition of other leaders who have served in this district, really starting with Congressman Lewis Stokes. Well, that's an interesting that you mentioned. So, so just for, for our listeners to make sure so we're clear, right? I think we talked about up top. So this is the 11th Congressional District in Ohio, Northeast Ohio. Those who are less political, more sports, it stretches from Cleveland to Akron. Um, Le- LeBron James was born in Akron and, and brought the basketball title to Cleveland in 2016. So that might give you some geographic uh, focus. Um, it's to replace uh, former Representative Marsha Fudge, who's now Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. And I, Nina, I don't know if you know this actually, but I had found a picture, must have been from the 50s, when my grandfather used to be minister of Glenville Church of God in Cleveland. And there's yes. a photo of him. Uh, they think that parishioners gave him a, a, a car. So him, my grandmother, my grandfather. And then in the back is this girl. There's several different people, but one of them is a little girl. And that little girl is Marsha Fudge, who oh, used to wow. go to my grandfather's church. And so that's the seat that's up right now in terms of what yeah. Nina's going for. So I wanted to, you mentioned Louis Stokes. I wanted to follow up because I don't think people really realize the significance of Cleveland in terms of it, this country's racial history and in terms of Black America in particular, right? And so Louis Stokes was the congressman. His brother, Carl Stokes, was the first Black mayor of a major American city elected in 1967. My mother used to drive, Carl Stokes's house when he was mayor was between our house in Cleveland Heights and my uh, grandparents' house, um, he's 128th Street in Cleveland. And my mother would consciously drive us by that house and point it out and say, that is where the mayor lives. And to this day, that still sticks with me. And so I, and a lot of people talk about this race. It's like, oh, this is Bernie's person, et cetera, et cetera. But you're, this is a, a largely black district. And so this, you're, the winner of this seat is going to be an important leader around what needs to happen for the black community. And so I wanted to get your thoughts around what do you think at this moment are the, some of the particular needs and challenges facing the African-American community in this district in particular, but in the country at large? Yeah, that's exactly right. And oh my goodness, just the fond memories and you have me connecting the dots. It's so refreshing to talk to someone from, you know, from Cleveland who can, you know, talk about the, the importance. Cleveland does not get the credit I think it deserves historically from a global perspective. 
in laying the foundation for black political power as you laid out mayor carl b stokes the first black uh, mayor of a major city and then his brother you know advocated agitated for the creation of this minority what they would call minority majority a seat which is majority african-american and it was the civil rights act that helped make this seat a reality and he became the first black person to occupy this seat and was there for 30 years i mean this seat has only had three congress people in the over 50 year history and greater akron was gerrymandered in for 10 years this used to be the 21st a congressional district had a very, very strong caucus and people all over the country used to look to the Cleveland area for how to strengthen uh, the black imprint in politics. And that is a very important thing. So I'm so glad that you are sharing that with uh, the listeners with us. I think the challenges for the black community are similar to the challenges for all uh, marginalized people uh, in this country is deeper for African-Americans because we are disproportionately impacted by negative things that plague human existence. And what I mean by that, if you look at our socioeconomic status as a people, we're behind. If you look at the racial wealth gap, both the wealth and also income gap, we are behind. If you look at health markers, if it is diabetes or high blood pressure, we're at the top of the list. For quality of life, we are at the bottom of the list. Uh, Cleveland is a majority African-American city the poorest city in the nation. So on and on and on, Black folks have been dying at higher rates from COVID, hospitalized at higher rates. Um, when we look at the Great Recession of 2008, nationally, Black people lost 50% of their wealth because most the wealth of most people, whether they're Black or white or uh, some other racial or ethnic group, that wealth is in one's home. It is both your greatest mm -hmm. asset, but also your greatest debt. And when we look at the impact of the Great Recession on all middle-class people. But again, African-Americans tend to always be the canary in the coal mine. 50% of that wealth was lost and there was no systemic answer to that. Uh, we look at the pandemic, fast forwarding. We may not be wearing masks as much as we used to, but make no mistake, that pandemic is still uh, among us. It is uh, still deep and it's going to have some consequences that I don't necessarily think as a nation we are ready to deal with in a systemic way. But 41% of Black businesses have gone out of business and then all small businesses by extension, no matter again who owned those businesses, have suffered. And so those kinds of the data points that I am laying out require a systemic response. Poverty is a policy choice. We know this and so we can go back. The GI Bill did a certain thing for veterans. Black veterans were left behind. The New Deal, God bless FDR and his vision and the fireside chats and what he did to try to put in the American psyche that we're going to get through this. All of those things that he did and his contemporaries that were with him, they were the right things to do. But when we peel back the layers, we recognize that the New Deal discriminated against people of color and especially the African-American community. So policies created a white middle class. Policies can level the playing field in an equitable way, equity, and we need to do that. And so I see, again, great opportunities 
uh, for this nation to right some wrongs. It is going to be hard, but it can be done. And so both within my district, which is a microcosm of the suffering that Black people are enduring across this country, and then gun violence that we see happening in major cities and babies are being shot and teenagers are being shot. And sometimes teenagers are holding those guns. We are going to have to deal with the systemic nature of poverty and then also what causes gun violence and then look at violence at the hands of the state. Those things are not necessarily mutually exclusive. And I believe that we have an obligation to look at all of those things and turn the tide. And I'm looking forward to continuing my work as the next congresswoman. But I did not wait to get another fancy title. I've been doing that work uh, on the ground, both in my district and all across this country. This is I'm like in church with you and also in class. Once I learned that you were a professor, like this is like <laughs> this is like I'm, I'm learning so much. And you, you got like so much. You got facts. <laughs> yeah. Well, I knew who I was coming coming with today. All right. You, you too. I had to step up my game a little bit. <laughs> Speaking of like the importance of representation and strength in numbers, if you were to be elected to Congress, you would be part of, this is what I'm you know reading in the news too, a growing progressive flank of the party, also known as the squad. The squad includes representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, also known as AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, Ilhan Omar, and more recently, Representatives Jamal Bowman and Cori Bush. All of these individuals have endorsed you. On the other hand, yep. On the other hand, some folks, including Congressman James Clyburn, have backed your opponent, chair of County Democratic Party, Chantel Brown. And in doing so, he cited, this is Clyburn, his opposition to the left's so-called sloganeering, using examples such as Medicare for all. So in defending policies that you support, such as union jobs and canceling student debt, you've said that poverty isn't bound by a political party. What do you see as the role of the squad? And also, what is the balance between governing and raising issues, between delivering and not alienating moderates? Well, I I think one should, and, and, and thank you for that, you know, setting the the frame here. From my perspective, and I think a growing number of Americans, I mean, when I ran for Secretary of State, I got a chance to travel the state in ways that I probably would not have and going into the rural sections of this state and talking to people who did not agree with me politically. I, I did that even before I ran for Secretary of State because in 2012, as we probably all remember, uh, President Obama's re-election was certainly not assured and it was becoming more tenuous mm. yeah. as time went on. And to really traveled this state to talk to my white sisters and brothers, family and friends about why it was absolutely necessary to reelect the first black president and land out where he stood next to uh, mm-hmm. the issues that matter to them the most matter to all of us. So when we take away the, the labels, who's progressive, who's moderate, who's conservative, and just have a down home conversation as uh, some of my uh, sister sisters would say, we on auntie's porch. You know, having yeah. <laughs> those porch conversations, we find that we really do have more in common than not. And especially people of a certain class. And I know sometimes people are voting, you know, we will say that they're voting against their class interests. And, and, and in their minds, they probably they would not label it that way. You know, just purely trying to have more of an open mind with people who you might not necessarily on the surface have a lot in common. But when you start to go deep and you talk about, for, for example, one million Ohioans lost their employer-sponsored health care. When you couple that with almost 100 million people in this country who are either uninsured and underinsured, that increased with the 
pandemic, the pandemic really revealed to us that employer-sponsored healthcare is not the way to go. It is untenable, unsustainable that we commodify healthcare and accept that as a premise in the United States of America. That's right. Where we, yeah, and we're very far behind our other industrialized nations. It just makes no sense. You know, Dr. Maya Angelou once said, when you know better, you do better. So I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is that the sloganeering comments is a really wrong in my mind. I know you're not surprised to hear me say that mm. because if we go back in time, just think about this. And I want you to go back with me. Was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. a sloganeer? Mm. You know, did he sloganeer when he talked about the three evils, militarism, mm. poverty, racism, when he came out against the Vietnam War, when he critiqued this country from a moral perspective of what the Negro, as he would say, uh, was suffering from in his time to what was happening to other nations, mainly nations of color at the hands of industrialized nations, was Minister Malcolm X sloganeering when he laid bare and revealed what was happening to urban Negroes or Black people, as we would say today, or African-Americans, was Fannie Lou Hamer sloganeering when her and her white contemporaries in Mississippi formed a freedom party together of Black and white poor people and indicted the status quo of the Democratic Party in the early 60s? Was she sloganeering? Was Congresswoman Barbara Jordan sloganeering when she said what the people want is very simple? They want an America as good as his promise. Was Ella Baker sloganeering when she said that we who believe in freedom cannot rest? Was Dr. Alice Paul sloganeering when she tied herself to the to the White House gates? You know, was the women's so all great movements, whether we're talking about our uh the the, the LBGTQ plus uh movement in this country, the women's rights movements in this country, the abolitionist movement in this country, of uh, people who are just standing up to say that we demand better for ourselves and for collective human humanity. I would argue that, you know, was Mother Jones sloganeer when she said I will pray for the dead and fight like hell for the living. There are a lot of sloganeers across the, 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 the span of, of history in this country and also internationally of people who were standing up fighting against the status quo. And these same people, Charlene, that you just named will stand up and quote Dr. King on, on Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. Mm. Mm. We got to think about that. What were you saying? So I'm in a great line okay. of slogans. It has been yeah. in church. So my grandfather would wrap up with the church and be like, give me that old time religion well, i'm feeling that moment here right now as well so Amen. okay so we we know your time is tight um nina and so we want to let you go um, as we mentioned yeah. the race is coming up in just a few weeks so people wanted to get involved yeah, to help weeks. you out um yeah. what how can how can people get That's involved in august just a reminder august 3rd correct yeah. is the yes. primary august, date august 3rd yeah, early voting has started. It started on July the 7th. It goes all the way to August the 2nd. And then August 3rd is election day in this special election. People can go to ninaturner.com. Again, that's ninaturner.com. Time, talent, and treasure is necessary. And I do want to take the opportunity to thank all of the people, starting with my district, but all over this country. We have certainly raised money in every single state in this country, plus the District of Columbia. And we have volunteers who are calling in and texting from where they live. But we also have people coming in from all parts of this of the country, California, Florida, New York, Connecticut. I mean, I am just overwhelmed with the love that is being shown to this campaign. So NinaTurner.com. Yes, August the 3rd is the day, the election day for this special election in Ohio 11. 
Great. So thank you so much, Nina. Uh, good luck. When we are hopeful to be able to take this uh, thank you, church voice to Congress and um, <laughs> forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And I look forward to joining you both again. Okay. So that's all the time we have today. Really uh, glad we were able to have that conversation with Nina Turner. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. If you are not already, you can follow Nina on Twitter and Instagram. She's at Nina Turner. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcast, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or signing up for our mailing list at democracyincolor.com. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, the Church of Democracy in Color says, keep the faith.